0: Father, we do not contemplate regularly enough how great thou art. We do not rightly meditate upon what your word tells us about you. If we did, Father, humility would not be the great struggle that it is in our hearts and minds as a people. We can only lift ourselves up by taking our eyes off you and not seeing how great thou art. You are great. You are glorious. You are majestic and beautiful. You are all-powerful and you are all-knowing. You are just and you are gracious. You revealed all that to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and through your sacred word. And then you've called us sinners, saved by grace, to come and enjoy you and your greatness. We ask for a uh, we have a mighty request this morning, Father, that only you can do. I ask that you would humble us. I mean really humble us. Maybe for the first time. Still so much pride in our hearts and so much pride in the church. We do not want to be like the world. We want to be transformed by you. And so we come as a proud people asking that you would make us humble this morning. Do this mighty work. Enable us to see how great thou art and who we are in Christ. In his name, amen. Good morning. Paul said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's really hard. I mean, there are, there are commands of Scripture that I think are more difficult than others. This is one. This is certainly one for me to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than myself. Humble people serve. And we've been talking about serving the Lord now since January 1st. Humble people serve because that's what humble people do. And I want to close up this, this topic. I want to close it up next Sunday on what it looks like to serve the Lord. But we cannot close without dealing with the absolute essential attribute that a believer must have if indeed they are going to be servants of Christ, and that is humility. It is a gospel humility, a Christ-centered, cross-exalting humility. We have to have it. If we do not, we cannot be faithful in serving Jesus Christ. I'm talking about That permanent disposition of the human heart that is radically changed by the gospel of grace and the love of Jesus Christ. That when He comes to you, you become a different person. You become a humble person who wants to serve, who longs to serve. If we want to be faithful and proclaim the gospel and pray for the lost like we saw Ezekiel do, we must be humble. If we want to be faithful and go through trials and experience sacrifices like that of Abraham and Isaiah, if we want to be those people, we absolutely must be humble. If we want to be faithful in the little things that we saw Jesus teach to last week in Matthew 25, that we might bear fruit in our lives, we must be humble. I want to be humble. I want our church to be a humble people. I desire it to be a defining quality in our lives. So when people see us and they know us, they see these are people that are humbled by God, rightly humbled. As sinful people raised in a culture that extols pride and self-exaltation without apology. I believe our understanding of humility is so off the mark, so bent by the sea of arrogance that we swim in every single day, that when we talk about biblical humility, we still don't grasp what it truly means and what it looks like being lived out in someone's life. I don't believe I truly understand it. And so I'm asking God to help me, a prideful man, preach a sermon about that which I don't really know. True, gospel-centered, Christ-exalting humility. I'd like to this Sunday and next, with your patience and God's grace, look at a few few passages from Scripture, because I want us to to get a, a picture of it. What is authentic, scriptural, biblical, gospel humility? What does it look like? What does it look like? And then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will pray that God enables us to live like this, as the Bible prescribes, in our homes, in our churches, in our workplaces, in this community, that we might faithfully serve the Lord as a humble people. N- next week, I want to look at what it means to boast in the cross. We're going to go to Galatians chapter 6. But this morning, let's take a look at a few passages and see if we can draw out what this looks like, what it means and how by God's grace we we can actually walk in it and become the very people that God desires us to be. I want to look at four things this morning. I want to look at how gospel humility gives all glory to God. I want to look at how gospel humility agrees joyfully with God's will, both the good and the bad. I want to look at how gospel humility dies to serve and how gospel humility flows from the cross. Now, it's going to be a little different this morning. I'm not Hanging on one passage, and I'm not, I'm not going to super irrigate it. We're going to look at a few. So, if you have your Bibles, please open up right now to First Corinthians chapter one. Go to First Corinthians chapter one, please. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 31. First Corinthians chapter one, verses 26 to 31, and I want to uh, consider how gospel humility gives all glory without exception to God. Look at verse 26 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26 and following. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. He says, "Consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth." Verse 27, "But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise; God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong." Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verse 30, And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Can I get one amen for that? This is our first test. How are you doing? I mean, how are your insides? How did you respond to hearing that? How did you respond to hearing the resume that Paul says to the church at Corinth? This is who you are. These are the people that you were before God saved you. Do you see yourself as such apart from Jesus Christ? Did you see yourself as such prior to being saved by Jesus Christ? Foolish Powerless, hated, a person of no reputation. You absolutely must, if you are to walk in this humility of which the Bible speaks, you must see that this is how we all started before we came to a saving grace in Jesus Christ. We are not worthy of being saved. We are without merit, dead, in our sins and transgressions. And therefore, God choosing you and choosing me and choosing anybody to be saved, the least, the last, the lost, those to whom he goes, will only give credit to him. All glory will go to God because we cannot hang anything and say, all right, God picked me because I'm better, I'm smarter, I'm more attractive. I was in the right family. I have the right name. It silences all who think they have some say in being saved, sanctified, and one day standing before Christ glorified. The Bible makes it imminently clear that there is no human merit in God's sovereign election of those He so redeems. None. And this is where we must start. He sovereignly chose the ignoble. He chose the powerless, the foolish, the weak. The lowly, the no names, like you, like me, so that no man dare boast in his presence. None of us will come into the presence of Jesus Christ and say, I know why you picked me. I know why. I mean, I'm the right one. I'm supposed to be here. I was born in the right place by the right parents, I went to the right schools. I had the right job and I married the right woman and I had the right kids and that's why I'm here. No one will stand in front of Jesus Christ and say those things. Gospel humility understands and rejoices in the truth that while we were what? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get good. He died while we hated him, while we were the foolish, powerless People of ill repute, so that all boasting, all credit, if understood correctly, will be turned away from man and our own self glory and turned to God where it all belongs. Look at verse 30. It's because of God you are in Christ Jesus. It's because of God that you are here this morning in Christ if you are saved. It's because of God you're in Christ Jesus, who, Christ, became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. If you're in Christ, listen, it's God's doing. If there's any of these qualities in you, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, if you have hope in redemption, it is God's doing. In total, If you're being sanctified right now by the Holy Spirit, it is God's doing. If one day you will come before Jesus Christ and be glorified, washed clean, it will be God's doing. Verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is not a difficult teaching to understand, but it is difficult to get a hold of in our hearts. Let me ask you this, does this truth cause you to rejoice or recoil? Which one? Do you find your heart warmed or repulsed by the by very thought that all glory, all majesty, all credit is going to go to God and not to you? Not your wisdom, not your choice, not your spiritual strength, not your good looks, not your name, not your degrees. Not how hard you work, God's glory. Gospel humility glories in God. It not only accepts this truth, but it rejoices in the thought that now and forevermore when we give credit of any kind to the great work of redemption, if we give credit to any kind of any good work we've done or any quality in us that is God-honoring, we will credit it to God and we will credit it to the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit in us. We want to be, I do believe, like the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 4. The 24 elders who are sitting around the throne of God, and we're told by John the Apostle in Revelation chapter 4 that they cast their crowns before the throne, and they said, "'Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created.'" Gospel humility is rooted in knowing God, in seeing His glory, in understanding that He is the Creator, and all things were created by Him and for Him. Knowing this, just like these men, not one elder stood up and said, I'm, I'm here, and I should be glorified because I'm a son of Abraham. Not one. Not one declared their works the preaching of the gospel, the casting out of demons. Not one said, did you see how many churches I planted, God? Not one said, I should be glorified for the suffering I went through. All 24 elders, men that we would want to know well, and one day by His grace we will know well. All 24 elders took their crowns, they threw them at the feet of the Lamb, and they declared, worthy are you of all glory and honor and praise forever and ever. My beloved, we want to get an eternal picture, an eschatological eschatological picture clear now. So too will you, when you come into the presence of God, not want to declare any glory of any kind. You won't want any credit. In fact, I would argue that when you see the face of Jesus Christ, all your boasting, all the self-exaltation that we do now will be like vomit in your mouth. You will hate the taste of it. It will come back upon you, and you would, if possible, take every cynical remark you've ever made about someone to lift yourself up. You will take every condemning glance that you've made at those that are lower than you. Every thought and every word that you made to bring yourself attention and bring yourself glory, every single one of those, if you could, you'd erase them. All those things that are written in the book, when you see the face of Christ, all of our self-exaltation, all the attempts that we do to, to have someone say, that a boy, you're doing all right, all the means of elevation we will hate because we will see the glorious one. And we will realize in all those episodes we were just trying to steal it from him. We were trying to take what belongs to him. Gospel humility rightly gives All glory to God and boasts only in the Lord because only the Lord is worthy of the glory. Is that your heart? Is that where we are? All glory, all honor, all power to God alone. We sing it, but is that your heart? It's one thing to sing it with our mouths, but do you believe with all your heart how great God is? Number two, gospel humility. If you still have your Bibles, please go to James chapter 4. Let's go to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, gospel humility agrees with God's will. So gospel, a gospel heart, a gospel humble heart will glory in God alone. And a gospel humble heart agrees with God's will. Whatever that will may be. James chapter 4. Look at verse 13 and following, please. James writes, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Verse 14, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. This is not saying, my beloved, that planning is evil, nor is it advocating a let-go, let-God heretical teaching. But James is rightly rebuking all boasting and arrogance, all those statements, we will go, we will trade, we will make a profit. And he is rightly rebuking the certainty of such statements and the certitude of our hearts, acting as though we know what the future entails, when in fact we do not know what the next five minutes entail, let alone tomorrow or next year. Look at verse 14. He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. My beloved, we are in no position, not one of us, in a position to make such bold declarations about the future. Tomorrow, for all of us, at this very moment, is indeed a mystery. We can make plans. God calls us to make plans. But your life tomorrow is determined by God. Even those who live long lives, what is that compared to eternity? I mean, what is it? A vapor, a mist, the grass, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow. What is the depth of your knowledge? I mean, what, what is it that you know about God's will so definitively that you can say, my tomorrow will be like this, my next week will be like this? How many of you can look into that, that proverbial crystal ball and know your future? You cannot. You cannot. We are vapors. It is both arrogant and it is foolish to think and live in such a definitive manner. Our response should be what? If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Do you notice that? If the Lord lives, we will will. All these plans become irrelevant if we die, right? So whatever plans I make, it's contingent upon God sustaining my life. And whatever plans I make, it's contingent upon God enabling me to do those things. Proverbs 16, 9, a proverb you know well, we can make our plans, but the Lord what? He determines our steps. Make all the plans you want, and by God's grace, there'll be godly plans, but it's God who determines the step of each one to make our plans and think that we somehow, by our wits or our perseverance or our strength or our intellect, somehow can determine our steps. It is boasting in our arrogance, and James is right, It is evil. It's evil. Gospel humility believes and rejoices in the fact that God is the sovereign. He's the sovereign God in control of all that is seen and unseen. He determines whether or not our plans succeed. He is the one that is in control of our coming and our going. God, not man, sets every single beat The number of beats your heart will make in your lifetime is set. The number of breaths that you will take, the day, the time, the second is ordained and known by God. God, not man, determines your upbringing, your education, the family to which you were born, the nation in which you were raised. He determines the church that you go to, the people that you fellowship with, the person that will be preaching the gospel to you. He determines all of these things. Psalm 139, 16, God, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, this does not contradict, and I don't want to go into great detail, it does not contradict your responsibility to make wise choices and live holy lives, nor does it deny your free agency. But the scriptures clearly teach that God is sovereign, and the humble heart rejoices in his providential sovereignty over all things, big and small. And that means, my beloved, if your plans succeed, God ordained those plans to succeed. And if your plans fail, God ordained for those plans to fail. He is sovereign. And either way, this is the beautiful thing, either way, the humble heart rejoices and gives praise to God because his will is perfect. And so we want both. We want the good that he says yes to and we want the things that we think are bad or hard that he says no to. We want all of it together because God's will is perfect and we are his children. If the Lord's wills, we will live and do this or that. This is the desire of someone with a humble heart, a heart that has been shaped by God. When you say at the end of your prayers, thy will be done. Ask God. Pray the prayers of supplication. Ask God. But then say, thy will be done because that's what you want most, is it not? It is if your heart is humble. It is. It is. We're asking for, and we desire here, a disposition of the heart that sees everything through the lens of the cross. We'll talk more about that next week and the work of Jesus Christ, that we will be able to say, Romans 8 28, that all things God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. So, gospel humility gives all glory to God, it joyfully accepts God's will in all circumstances. I'll give you one more it dies to serve. It dies to serve. Um, if you still have your Bibles open, please turn to Philippians chapter 2. Gospel humility dies to serve. Philippians chapter 2, this was the passage that I had Pastor Kurt read. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Humble hearts, gospel hearts, do this work of, of heavy lifting, of, of getting low with those who are in need and in the power of the Holy Spirit, working in Christ to lift them up. This is what humble hearts do. They count others more significant They count the needs of others more important than themselves and than their own. And as a result, they use all the gifts we talked about last week, their energy and their resources and the spiritual gifts, they use them to bless others and to minister to others. Spiritual, physical, emotional well-being of other people become the priority of a gospel humble heart. And they do this by dying to themselves by dying to their selfish desires of not wanting to serve, foregoing whatever it is that will impede their ability to go and put the needs of someone else above their own. And that's hard. I mean, that is hard. Our flesh wants to serve self. We want to be lazy. We want to be self-serving. We want to take care of our own. But a humble heart, God changes and says, I want you to look out I want you to see the needs of others. I want you to put their interest above your own. And then the desire comes from God to do that. And you'll actually desire to help people and love people more than you want to just serve yourself. Every day, every day, my father for 30 years got up at like 4 a.m. And he went to a job he didn't like. I mean, it, not that he hated it, but he really didn't like it that much. Lots of things he'd rather been doing. And he got up and for 30 years he did that because he put the interest of his family above himself his wife and his children, that we might have food to eat and clothes on our back and a roof over our head and beds to sleep in. That's putting the needs of others above yourself. And my mom, simultaneously during that time, every single day she'd get up really early and she'd make breakfast for the whole family. Extraordinary thing. And then she'd make five lunches, one for my dad and one for each of her sons. And every day we'd march off to school with our, our really healthy bag lunch. Now, I, I imagine my mom didn't wake up saying, oh, I love making lunches at five in the morning. I don't like making lunch at any time. But she had a greater love for her husband and her children than she did for herself. So she served. There was a gospel humility that had captivated her heart. And I imagine she would say she did that service joyfully. She did it joyfully. She sure did it well. These are simple acts that reveal the humility of a heart that's been captured by Jesus Christ. Acts of service and acts of love. And this is the standard, and it is a high standard that gospel humility calls us to. Doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. I like the NIV says vain conceit, just for you, just for your own glory and your own pleasure, to lift yourself up, but to do what? It says do everything, everything we do, every thought that we have, every word that we speak, all of our lunch making, all of our working, all the labor of our hands, we are to do everything for the good of those around us. An other-centered, dying-to-self disposition of heart. That's what gospel humility is. It is so radically different than the way we live, and it is so contrary to the flesh in what we desire to do. Gospel humble people can serve like this because they see the futility of trying to make a name for themselves. They have, they've read Ecclesiastes and they've heard Solomon say, vanity, vanity, all vanity, and they know there's no sense. A gospel humble heart says, there's no sense in me trying to make a name for myself. It's all vanity. It's all worthless. They know. You know if you're like this. That every gift that you have, every talent that you have, every blessing that you have, any virtue in your heart, any good word that comes out of your mouth, or any serving that comes from your hands, you know it's because of God. And so you don't go around trying to impress people with your gifts, saying, look at me, look how smart I am, look at the job that I have. You don't do these things because you realize there is a gift giver, and all those things have been given to you by God. And so if you boast in them, you boast in the Lord. If you have a healthy marriage, you boast in that, but you give credit to Jesus Christ because he's made your marriage healthy. If your kids have turned out decently and are not totally screwed up, you give credit to God because you know that was his pure grace, covering your mistakes. My beloved, if you have a job and you can pay for bills and cover, cover your head with a, with a roof and have clothes on your back, you don't go around flaunting that if you have a humble heart in Christ because you know that's his blessings. He cares for his children. And so there's all boasting and all arrogance and self-glory, it goes away. It goes away. We see, the humble heart sees, that it's God through the work of Jesus Christ that enabled all of this to happen. You, you cannot, you cannot sing a song or read a verse or meditate upon your Savior hanging upon that cross for you. You cannot think about His body being dashed and His blood being spilled And Him taking all of your sins and the consequences of your sins for an eternity. You can't contemplate that of Him receiving all that for you to buy you back, to take you out of hell and bring you into His presence. You cannot contemplate that and have an arrogant heart. It's impossible. You cannot see the degree to which Jesus Christ sacrificed Himself to bring you into His glory and therefore bring glory to yourself. If you've seen the sacrifice of Christ, if you've, just it just takes a touch. You just have to get a glimpse of how glorious he is and how majestic he is and how loving he has been towards you. It just takes a glimpse. It's that powerful. That taste is that strong that it will destroy your pride because you won't want to have any glory for yourself. You'll want to give it and give it to God. You will be like the Apostle Paul and you will say, oh, Oh, all my good works, all my good thoughts, all the good words I've ever said, all of them are nothing but filthy, wretched, deplorable rags before this most holy, glorious God. You won't hold anything up. You cannot in the presence of Jesus Christ. You will believe what the Bible says. Instead, you will hear James say to you, if we humble ourselves before the Lord, He will what? He will lift us up in due time. And you will work toward humility and you'll press for it. You'll pray for it. God, make me humble today. Make me humble this hour. And that's how bad off we are. I do believe these prayers have to become so specific. I believe they have to come down to the hours and the minutes. Our days are so filled with pride, and we don't see it. We don't. Again, because of the culture in which we live, and it's made it into the church, pride dominates our character and nature, even as saved people. And so we must begin to pray And ask God to make us humble right now. Humble our hearts right now and our minds now. Not this afternoon and not tonight, but I need it now. The church is maintained and it grows by those who serve. And if we are not humble, we cannot serve. If we are humble, we will not. We will not serve. Every member of the body, as we saw last week, every member. It's such a great picture as we see in 1 Corinthians Uh, chapter 12, every member has gifts and talents and resources given to you by God to serve him. Specific, fantastic gifts. And you have them. I mean, you have all kinds of them. It's amazing. And they were given to you to be open and to be exercised and to be used to bless the church and to bless the lost, to hear the gospel and to believe my beloved, the tragic nature of this story is that if you are not humbled in Christ, you will not use the gifts. And if you do use the gifts, you'll use them for your own glory. If we lack humility, we will neglect the work that God has given us to do. We will neglect it. If we were faithful to the calling, if we were faithful to exercise our gifts with humble hearts, there'd be more prayer whether or not we pray more. We'd be praying for more people. If there was a a Christ-centered humility in our hearts on a daily basis, we'd be sharing the gospel more. And we'd be concerned about the well-being, the eternal well-being of souls. We'd be looking for the least and the lost and we would be ministering to them because we would consider their needs above our own. There'd be more disciple-making. There'd be more hearts that are grieving, comforted. There'd be more suffering brothers and sisters who are brought comfort in the cross. How many more, my beloved? How many more prayers? How much more ministry? How many more disciples would we be making if our hearts were truly humbled and we exercised the gifts as God has so ordained? How many more? hundreds, thousands. Without humility, we will not boast in the Lord only. We will boast in ourselves. Without a gospel humility, we will not accept the will of God when it is both good and bad. We'll take the will of God when we're pleased with it, but when it's difficult and it's hard and it's painful, we will reject God's will and we will demand from God how things ought to be. What we deserve, because we always deserve better. We won't serve, or we will serve with the wrong motives because our desires will be captured by selfishness. So how do we get to where we want to be? How, how do I, how do we as a church, overcome our pride-filled, poisoned hearts? How do we do that? How do we become a people that truly glory in God alone. So when we sing all glory, honor, and praise be to you, O God, forever and ever, amen, when we sing that, we really mean it in here. I mean, how how do we become people who rejoice in the will of God when it's really difficult, when there's sickness and there's pain and there's brokenness? How do we rejoice in that? Not grit our teeth and say, all right, God, I guess. And how do we become people who serve like this? Last point, still with me, still with me. See, if you don't say yes, I think you're sleeping. So are you still with me? Good, you're not asleep. Look back at uh, Philippians chapter two, please. Gospel humility, it'll flow from the cross. We have the model and we have the power. We have the model and we have the power. Look at verse five. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. What mind? This is the mind of the servant Who puts others above himself, who puts the needs of others above his own needs. This is the mind we're supposed to have. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. You have the the model, and you have the power in these verses. Paul says, have this mind, this gospel-centered, Christ-exalting mind among yourselves. And then he says, really important, this is yours in Jesus. In other words, you already possess it. This humility that we've been talking about that seems way beyond us, this humility that is described as doing everything not out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but out of your love for Christ in the interest of others. Everything. This humility, this passage says you already have the power and potential to live like that. Do you believe that? I mean, that's an amazing statement. That it's already in you if you're in Christ. Look at it again. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You already have it. You already have it. The ability to live like this, it is a gift that's given to each and every one of us when we're saved by grace, when the Holy Spirit dwells within you. You have been made to be a humble person. So if you are not, if you're like me and you say, I'm not a humble person, then you are fighting against the gift of God. You're working against God. He has made you humble. He desires you to be humble. You have the power and the potential to have this gospel humility. And if you are not, then you are fighting against it. It was accomplished for you on your behalf through the great humiliation of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Again, look at the model. He emptied himself of his heavenly dwelling. He took the form of a servant in the likeness of a man, and he humbled himself. How far? How far did he humble himself? All the way to the point of death, even death on a Roman cross. That's how far Jesus Christ submitted to his own humiliation on our behalf. This extreme sacrificial love. It's not only a model for us to say, okay, this is how we're to live. It is the very means and the power by which we can come into a right relationship with God the Father through the saving grace of Jesus Christ and be humble people and have the mind of Christ. We don't look at this and say, okay, this is how Jesus did it, and it was incredible, and it was extreme, and therefore now I'm going to go try really hard to do it, No, the very means by which you come into a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. It is through this cross. And therefore, every man and woman has an opportunity to repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ and have their pride-filled hearts broken and humbled. We can become these people because we are in Christ and with the Father. He imparts it to you. You can't earn it. It's been given to you freely, and therefore we're supposed to exercise it. In our Lord's 33 years on earth, he lived in perfect humility. It's such a beautiful picture, I mean, it really is. It's a beautiful picture. He lived in perfect humility. In the glorification of the Father, every single thing Jesus ever did, every word he ever uttered, and we can say every thought that he had, every prayer that he made was to the glory of God. Do you know that? I mean, Jesus Christ, who is the creator of the universe and deserves all glory and honor and power during his earthly ministry, did not receive that glory, but pointed to God the Father in everything. How tempting it would have been, would it not? As he performs these miracles that no one had ever seen, as he makes the sick well and he raises people from the dead. How tempting for Jesus to say, yeah, it wasn't bad, huh? I mean, that was something else. Even I'm impressed. Never. Never. He doesn't think it. He doesn't utter it. And every single miracle, what does he do? Glorify God. Glorify the Father. All praise to my Father for the work that he was doing through Jesus Christ. Only hours before he was to ascend the cross, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he turned his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Why? That the Son may glorify you. His whole life, the entire mission of Jesus Christ was to glorify God the Father in the redemption of man. And he did. In the garden, when the full weight of what was about to happen to him hit that fever pitch in his heart, when he realized that in the going to the cross, he was actually going to receive the due punishment of our sins in his body upon the cross, that he was going to experience the consequences of an eternal hell in his relationship with God the Father. When he got that, look at how laser-focused he was. Matthew 26, 39, he said, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. If there's any other way, remove it. If there's any other way to save mankind, then let me not go to the cross. If there's any other way for those people you have called before the foundations of the world to be saved, any other way, let's go that path. But then he says what? Yet not as I will, but as you will. Thy will be done. No one, no one has desired God's will so perfectly and so beautifully like Jesus Christ. He desired the glory of God. He desired the will of God. And he was and is the servant par excellence. I mean, he is the consummate and ultimate servant. He said to his disciples, what? I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And he did, did he not, his entire life he served. In his death and resurrection, he served. In his ascending into heaven and being seated at the right hand of the Father and interceding on our behalf in prayer, he serves. Jesus Christ revealed in his life something that is completely contrary to our sinful, self-serving hearts and minds. It's the opposite life. He didn't come as a king saying, minister to me, serve me, love me. He came as a suffering servant. He didn't come to, he didn't come to show us how to live a self-serving served life and sprinkle a little service towards others. He didn't come for that reason. He came to die on our behalf and pay for our sins so that he could take his righteousness and his humble heart and put it upon us the word we use in theology is to impart but it's to give you to press upon to make that yours so that you like he have the power to have his mind the mind of Christ the humble servant of god so that we too can be humble servants of god the apostle paul said in ephesians 4:2 be completely humble and gentle that That is an impossible command unless I have the mind and heart of Jesus Christ. It's impossible. And we can say, shame on you, Paul, for telling such sinful, pride-filled people to be completely humble and gentle, being patient, bearing with one another in love. Jesus Christ enables us to be children of God so radically transformed of heart and mind that we can hear the command of Ephesians 4.2 to be completely humble and gentle and not recoil. But to have, have your life be defined by humility and not pride. Oh, I would love that. I would love that. To have our lives be defined by serving others and not serving ourselves. Augustine rightly said, listen, Should you ask me what is the first thing in religion, I should reply that the first and the second and the third thing therein is humility. That's a bold statement, but he's right. My beloved, if we're not humble, we can't see the need to be saved. If we're not humble, we can't rightly serve God in our saved states. If we're not humble, we can't look upon the needs of others and meet their needs. We can't look upon their interests and be interested in them. If Christ dwells in you, the great news is that you have the power and the potential to truly live humble lives in the Lord. Because at the cross of Jesus Christ, in your repentance and faith, when you gaze upon your crucified risen Savior, you receive... From him, a new heart. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. And that heart of flesh is a humble heart. The heart of stone is hard, and it's prideful, and it's arrogant, and it boasts in all that we want. But the heart of flesh that God gives you is one that is broken and contrite, and he finds it radiant. He finds it beautiful. We must cultivate this new heart in our lives. Most of you I know, I know that you've been saved by grace. So I know that you have this power within you. And yet most of you, like myself, we are still filled with so much pride. I've been catching myself this entire week. So many words that I use are used for my own self-exaltation. So many thoughts that I have are primarily for me. To have me looked at well. To have me thought of, well, not by God, but by man or by by myself. Something as simple as I'm throwing the football with my youngest son yesterday in the street. And I throw a very nice pass to him, and he misses it. It goes through his hands. And I say to him, why didn't you catch that? Why didn't you catch that? And if he had any sense, he'd turn around and said, why didn't you catch that, Dad? Why didn't you catch that prideful word, that prideful sentence coming off your tongue? Because he'd have been right. Why would I say something like that? Because I would have caught that, right? Because I made a really good pass that you should have caught. It's so simple, and yet it's so filled with pride. My beloved, I believe that we need a radical reorientation of our hearts and minds. And I don't think it's just me. I know, I know how bad I am, but I don't think it's just me. I think that we are suffering from an epidemic of pride in the church. We look out in the culture, we see there, well, of course, there's no spirit, there's no power, there's no crucified Christ. But I'm talking about in the church. How much time do we spend sizing each other up? How much time do we spend critiquing and condemning and judging one another? And how little time do we spend serving one another? How little time putting the needs of our brothers and sisters above our own? All right, I want to close with talking about just a few things of how we do this. How do we do this? It's going to be daily work. If you're like me, it's going to be hourly work. But here are a few things. Are you ready? Daily, hourly, going to the cross and reminding yourself from whence you came. How did you get here? Where did you start in this journey with Jesus Christ? Remember, you were ignoble, powerless, foolish, weak, lowly despised. You were a nameless soul destined for hell. Remind yourself of that. That's not who you are now in Christ, praise God. But that's where you started, and that's where you'd be if he did not save you. That'll ruin a prideful heart. That'll destroy a prideful heart very quickly. Saying, I, I know where I came from. I know how bad I was. I know how lost I was. I know the cost of God to redeem me. I know it cost him his son. I know it cost him his son's blood that my blood would not be spilled. I got a clear view of Christ. I want to see him upon that cross. And when I, know, I want to know that he died for me. And had he not died for me, I would not be here. I would not be saved. I would not be in a church. I would not have the word or know the word. That'll cause you to boast in God alone. You'll you'll see God working. The alien righteousness which has been given to you, the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. You'll see good things in your life. You'll see yourself actually loving people. You'll see yourself ministering to people you don't like very much. You'll see yourself being kind and patient with people who drive you crazy. You will see yourself overcoming habits that used to, find, to define you. You see yourself working when you used to be lazy and having right entertainment and good things and not evil things. And you'll say, "What? who's doing all this work? And you will know that it is God through Christ and the Holy Spirit. And you will say, glory be to God. Christ has taken your shame because he went upon that cross and he's given you all of these blessings. He's given you his righteousness. And so one way we fight the prideful heart is to gaze upon a crucified Christ, to go back to the cross and remember where you came from and where you were and where you are now and how glorious that is. What an amazing work he's done in us. What an amazing work. Second thing you can do on a daily or hourly basis, cultivate in your heart and mind, see clearly that everything that happens to you, the really good and the really bad, it is part of God's ordained, decreed will, and be pleased. Be pleased that God the Father, through Jesus Christ, is doing His will in your life. If we pray the prayer, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, and we desire that in upon, upon our hearts, and we want to live like that, then we can't just say, Lord, your will be done when things are good. We must say, Lord, thy will be done, good or bad, easy or hard, pleasant or painful, thy will be done. That's what I want most. Very dangerous we will say to God, thy will be done, and we will rejoice in it because the good that we have, we know, is a gift that's purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Every single good thing you have in your life, every single good thing was purchased by the blood of Christ on the cross and given to you. Every good thing comes from the cross, everyone, because it's grace. It's pure, unmerited favor. What we deserve is hell. It is judgment and condemnation. And what we get is grace. It also means, my beloved, that we will rejoice even when things are hard, even when bad and evil comes upon us, because we know that whatever evil we experience on this side, it's just a taste of what we rightly deserved in hell. All the hardship, all the pain, all the suffering, you're getting a foreshadowing of taste of what your eternity would be like, infinitely worse. And so we realize that. And we say, but that's not what I get. That's not the end for me. All that hardship, you will see that Christ took for you upon the cross, and instead he's imparted to you his eternal goodness. And that means the humble heart, here's some hard words, the humble heart will never, ever, ever say, why me? In fact, the Christian should never utter that. Why me? Because when you say, why me? You're saying, I deserve something other. I deserve something better. I'm a child of God. Why me? Why would this happen to me? So when the rains come and the mountains fall down and it closes a freeway and it causes thousands of people from their commute to go from 45 minutes to five hours each way, you won't sit in your car and you, will, you won't say, why me? You will say, I deserve worse. Hmm? When sickness comes upon you and ravages your once healthy body, the gospel heart, the humble heart will say, this is better than I deserve. These are hard truths. When people turn against you and they slander your name and they say all kinds of evil things about you, you will say, this is way, way better than I deserve. And you can actually rejoice in the midst of it. When you find yourself basking in a biblical marriage or rejoicing in the coming of a new baby or maybe you, maybe you just got a job and it's a job that you've been praying for that God would bless you with that you might be able to pay your bills. When these things come to you, the humble heart will rejoice because you realize it's all grace coming from the cross of Christ, all gifts from the Savior. We must remind ourselves daily of these truths, hourly if necessary, to walk with gospel humility in serving the Lord. And lastly, you will look upon Jesus Christ and instead of lifting yourself up by condemning others, You will look upon others as more significant than yourselves, and you will desire to serve. People created in the image of God. If you haven't listened, listen now, please. One of the ways that we can submit to the teaching that Paul brings to us in Philippians chapter 2 is to look upon all mankind in one of two states. All people are created in the image of God, all people are destined for one of two eternal destinations it's going to be heaven or it's going to be hell. That simple truth alone will enable us with humble hearts to serve them. If saved, if brothers and sisters, now listen, then these are people that God deems so precious that he would sacrifice Christ to bring them out of hell and into heaven for eternity. This is how much God loves his children. So when we look upon one another within the context of the church, and we hear Paul saying that we should put the concerns of others above our own and we should look out for the interests of others above our own. When we look upon one another and we see that you are people redeemed by the blood of Christ and this is how much God loves you and I say or we say we love God, then the response will be radical, sacrificial service to one another because you will be serving and loving the very people that Jesus Christ died for, and you will say, more significant than me, your needs more significant than mine. It's equally true of the unsaved. You say, well, how so? The unsaved do not know Jesus Christ. They don't know the grace and the love and the forgiveness that he offers through the cross, and so we can say rightly that their interests are are infinitely greater than any interest you currently have if you are in Christ. Is that not true? You say, no, I have, I have great concerns. I have great interests, I have issues with my work. I have issues with my bills. I have issues in my marriage and issues in my children. If you know Christ, you are saved, eternally redeemed. Your joy, your end, your satisfaction, it is sealed by the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit. You have no interest as great as the unsaved, because the unsaved do not know Christ. And so when you look upon them, you will see their interest as being infinitely greater than yours. And you will, my beloved, you will put some of your interests down, you will put some of your concerns down, and you will go to them because of their great interest of not knowing Christ, and you will share the gospel. You will tell them the truth, the painful truth of God creating mankind and it being glorious and man rebelling against their good and gracious God and being condemned to hell. You will tell them of their sins. You will warn them of the judgment to come and then you will provide the medicine of the gospel and the hope of Christ. You will say, this man came and this man died and this man rose that you might live and that is your greatest interest. And we can do that. Because we can look upon them and we can see that that's where we were. And someone came to us. Someone had a greater interest in your soul than you did. Someone came to you when your interests were occupied by the world and fleshly things. And someone came to you and they told you about God and your sin and Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit came to you and made you alive and you repented and you believed. Shame on us if we do not bring these interests. These are our eternal interests of life and death upon the hearts of who do, those who do not know Christ. We want to tell them. We need to tell them. My beloved, when I look upon Christ and I see His beautifully humble heart, I still see so much pride in my own I still see so much pride in our church. Let's pray right now, and let's ask God to take the gift of humility that came from the cross and that has been given to each of us freely in Christ, to take the humble heart, the gospel humble heart in each of us, and raise it up cultivate it in us so that we, as a local body of believers, Cambrian Park Baptist Church, that we, as a people, will be defined by this humble gospel love, that people will know us like that. So when we leave this place and we go out to our workplaces, they will see true humility when we go into the neighborhood to Meet the interest of those who do not know Christ. They will see our hearts when we tell them about Jesus. When you go home and you love your wives and you love your husbands and you care for your children, they will see gospel humility in your life. They will hear it with your words. Saints, I'm way off the mark here. I need your prayers. I want to be a humble man. I want us to be a humble people. All right, so let's ask God to do that work because he must. Hmm? Let's pray. Father, how difficult it is to preach upon that which I am not. To gaze upon the humility of Christ upon the cross and see the glorious work that he accomplished on our behalf and still be prideful Father, we know this is not right. We know that it is hateful to your kingdom, and we know that it does not produce in the life of your children servants. And yet, we want to be like Jeremiah. We want to be like Abraham and Isaiah. We want to be like Ezekiel. We want to be like Joshua. We want to be like these men who gave their lives in service to you, and yet we know that without humility, we cannot and we will not So we ask, by your grace, to pour it out on us lavishly, bathe us in it. Lord, have it come from the cross that we might see the sacrifice of Christ and the humility that he took upon himself in becoming a man and humbling himself to the point of death on a cross. Let us receive that gift of grace joyfully that we might be changed even this very hour, even this very day as a people. We ask this, Father, as undeserving people, but we ask it for your glory because we know that you will be glorified in our lives as we humbly serve your Son, Jesus Christ. So lift up your name. Magnify your name. Make yourself great here in this place, in this time, through us. And humble us. In Christ's name. Amen.